0: Morning. Let's see, Uh, so I'd like to talk to you about um, the things that we surround ourselves with, the products and the experiences that we invite into our lives, and how that influences how we think and feel. And then conversely, how what we make kind of affects the others that use whatever it is that we produce. So everywhere we go, we're surrounded by bad design from airplane seats that distort our natural posture to aesthetically inelegant cars. This is the Fiat Multipla. It was um, awarded ugliest car of the year by some car magazine and many readers refer to it as looking like a psychotic duck. (laughs) (laughs) Landscapes that were once green and blue are now paved over and our surroundings are full of missed opportunities to introduce delight and joy into people's lives. Poorly designed things slow us down and make us sad, like the ugly building in your neighborhood that makes you wince every time you go by it, or the TV remote control with too many buttons, or the software that just won't work. And these objects and experiences are outcomes of miscommunication, greed, lack of empathy, lack of focus. And bad design is especially depressing In this world, given the price imposed on this planet, sometimes it just feels like we're filling the world with junk. And as the technology industry matures, we have witnessed greater interest and investment in design. So companies now embrace the notion that design can offer them a competitive advantage um, and their products can differentiate them from the competition. So our understanding of what design means has increasingly deepened over the years as this interest has increased. So we're moving beyond an appreciation of design as referring to just aesthetics and moving more towards um, problem-solving skills. And for the last couple of decades in this industry, when we claim a product is well designed, uh, we consider it to be useful, usable, desirable. But to me, this is just a baseline. We need to do better than this. Um, Now, what do I mean? Okay, before we get too deep, I just want to do a survey of all the different levels at which design can be understood. Okay, So the most basic understanding of what design means often refers to aesthetics. We refer to this as form in the design world. So universal principles of beauty, like the golden ratio, or the rule of thirds, or principles of uh, proximity, alignment, contrast, um, repetition, they all inform our innate sense of whether something is beautiful or not. And at this level of understanding of design, We think of design as the outward appearance of an object, such as whether a car looks fast, or expensive, or muscly. Okay, but design is not just about how a product looks, but it's also about how it works. So we consider an object well-designed, not only when it's beautiful, but also when it's useful and it's easy to use. So good design makes our lives better. It saves us time and reduces cognitive load, which in turn preserves willpower and goodwill towards others, and in this sense, uh, I often describe good design as being like a refrigerator. When it works, no one notices, but when it doesn't, it really stinks. Okay. All right. So when a company consistently delivers an aesthetic and functional quality, uh, it design becomes the brand. It becomes the vehicle by which customers create the emotional connection to, our cus- to the customers. And consumers choose to associate themselves with certain brands because the brands embody qualities or attributes or ideals that appeal to them. So towards the late 90s, successful design meant orchestrating memorable events for customers, and that memory itself became the product, the experience. So take American Girl dolls, for example. It's not just enough to buy a doll. In the experience economy, you can now design your own doll and customize it to look like you. You can give her a spa day and hair extensions and a facial and a manicure. It's not just about buying a doll, but around creating an entire experience around acquiring and owning this doll. So design goes beyond the product and the brand and encompasses the entire customer experience. Now the term design thinking was popularized by IDEO and Stanford University over the last 10 years. And design thinking refers to a set of cognitive processes directed towards problem solving. So different stages of the design thinking process include uh, cultivating empathy for who you're building for, um, uh, defining the problem, generating a lot of ideas, prototyping possible solutions, gathering feedback, and iterating. And with this understanding of design, design is about solving problems. So now. Design is a term that refers to what something or some service looks like, how it behaves, the emotions evoked when people interact with it, and the experience that one has when one interacts with it, and a way of thinking and acting to solve problems. But what is the deepest level of understanding of design? Well, I claim that design is also a manifestation of the self. So what do we mean by the self? This is a quick Google search that comes up with this definition, that the self is a person's essential being that distinguishes them from others, especially considered as the object of introspection or reflexive action. So like synonyms, you might use the word soul or spirit, or if that's too esoteric for you, you might think of this as a person's identity or personality. Okay, So any creative endeavor is an expression of the human spirit. Whether or not you're a designer, when we're making something, whether it's producing an event, or writing a blog, or making a product, or writing code, we are creating an outward expression of who we are and the values and the virtues that we have internalized. What we make embodies our values and virtues and becomes a tangible expression of ourself. So take fashion design, for example. In the early 1900s, Stylish clothes were complicated and very expensive. They were designed to portray women as delicate and passive and were highly impractical for doing anything other than to sit in the drawing room and entertain guests. The clothes signaled an aspiration. Coco Chanel grew up poor, skinny, and orphaned during this era, but she believed that she was as good as the rich girls who spurned her and with her spunk and flair, she grew up to be a confident, capable woman who was energetic, focused, and engaged with the world. And Chanel had a different vision of existence for women during this era, and the clothes that she designed represented a different ideal from what fashionable clothes of the day were like. Her little black dress, which was introduced in 1926, embodied virtues that she valued in herself, and reflect a woman who was energetic, competent, and engaged with the world, just like herself. Chanel's clothes focused on quality, and they weren't focused on following the latest trends or becoming a fad. Chanel's designs have endured over decades and are still relevant now. So take a look at these products designed by Dieter Roms for Braun. Dieter Rams was a chief design officer for Braun in the mid-century. And these products, like Rahms himself, are humble, modest, and hardworking. And even though they were created in the middle of the last century, These products have inspired the design of many of our beloved technology gadgets today, which is a real testament to the endurance and the purity of Rams' vision. Being simple may make us feel vulnerable, but that simplicity is really an achievement. It follows from deep introspection about what really matters, the result of hard-won clarity and focus. These acts reflect virtues, such as non-striving, non-attachment, and overcoming fear. Well-designed products are like their makers. They're imbued with modesty. They don't try to attract your attention for no reason. They're happy to sit in the background and do the work. Many of us have seen the opposite of what this looks like, and you may have seen this in your own professional lives. I've certainly seen this. So as a designer, I've often been asked to save the design of a product, when really it just feels like I'm putting lipstick on a pig. It's still a pig, okay? So for example, have you ever witnessed a company that was afraid to turn away easy revenue opportunities even though it didn't make sense for the business or for the user? Okay. That is an outcome of greed. Or how about the development team that keeps adding features just because they can? That's an outcome of attachment or striving. Okay. Or maybe the company that doesn't want to make the hard decision to kill a middling product because they don't want to make current users angry. That's an outcome Of fear. Fear, greed, attachment, those are just a few examples of afflictions of the self that can plague any company, okay? They dilute the purity of the true intention behind what is being made. And for any organization or individual that is making a product or a service, the clarity and the simplicity of the design depends crucially on their ability to confront these issues in order to better align with their intention. So the story of Steve Jobs returning to Apple in 1997 famously illustrates this point. When Jobs returned to Apple, he simplified the product offering by streamlining the product line, uh, cutting the product portfolio from 350 products to just 10 products. He maintained that what really mattered was not what they did do, but what they didn't do. And instead of producing so many products, Jobs focused on a few machines that were meticulously perfected. So Jobs had a clear intention. It was a commitment to quality over quantity. And many executives may make the same claim, but they are reluctant to actually make the hard choices. And if you consider how emotionally hard it is to cut products that have already been designed or developed and manufactured, and to eliminate jobs for 3,000 employees, that's really, really hard to do. And Jobs wasn't afraid of making a tough choice that would make him unpopular. He was willing to risk his popularity with others in the pursuit of upholding his vision, which he believed would, in the long run, serve the company and the users better. He transcended any feelings of greed, fear, or attachment that might accompany this decision. In my own experience, when I was running product design at Udacity, I saw this as well. The founder, Sebastian Thrun, had put his uh, computer science course online and um, overnight, it became a sensation. And immediately, we started to get um, uh, outreach from various organizations, from uh, University of Alberta, who wanted to develop a dinosaurs class, to San Jose State, who wanted to offer cheap college credit through our platform. This was really well publicized. And what we found through our user research was that all these business development deals were undermining our credibility to become a credible uh, source of tech education. And when we said, like, look, we need to kill this dinosaurs class, we need to kill the San Jose State uh, offering, Sebastian, who's such a nice guy, one of the most wonderful people in this universe, said, I will feel like such a jerk if I kill these deals because they are depending on me. And that's when I realized that as a designer, my role was not just to design, um, you know, the experience or the UX or the visual design or whatever, it was to really help the founder um, come to terms with his own feelings of fear. Um, in this case, fear of losing his friends. And when he was able to do that, then you know, we were able to move forward, happy to say Udacity is valued at over a billion dollars, they launched their nano degree um, for self-driving car engineers, and they're on their way. When we are fearful, greedy, or attached, our actions get manifested in the design as complexity and clutter. And the more we're able to transcend our beliefs about ourself, the better we can create great design that clearly expresses our intention. What we create reflects our inner state. And as much as what we make embodies ourself, we pass on our attributes, our vision, and our intention to others when they consume what we make. So design is the culmination of intention, values, and principles that are manifested in tangible form and passed on to to other people. Design has the power to shape how we think and feel. This is Adam Galinsky. He's a professor at Columbia University. And he studied the impact that clothes can have on how we think about ourselves and our performance. So participants were given the Stroop test, where they're shown names of various colors printed in a different color from what they represent. And this is a pretty tricky test because our natural tendency is just to read the name uh, rather than the color that we perceive. But those who wore white lab coats performed significantly better on the Stroop test than those who wore just ordinary clothes. And what's also interesting about this study is that this happened when the participants were told that they were wearing white lab coats, but in a different variation of this experiment, uh, there were some participants who were told that they were wearing a painter's coat. So it's the same white coat, but in one condition they were told it's a white lab coat, and in another condition they were told it's a painter's coat. And in that case, those people did not experience the same gains on the Stroop test. Why? Well, they said that when they were wearing a painter's coat, they were kind of projecting a certain image of the kind of person who would wear such a coat, such like, like a creative artist who doesn't care about accuracy and performance which I think is really offensive, but <laughs> all right. So these participants were primed to project a certain image about the white garment that they were wearing by being told what it was, which in turn affected how they performed. Now, in, every regu- in regular everyday life, we're not usually told what are the psychological qualities of the objects that we're using, um, but when something is designed with a clear intention, that intention is more effectively Channeled through that creation and conveyed to the recipients of the design. So, for example, let's go back to Coco Chanel. Okay. Chanel's little black dress, in in Chanel's little black dress, women could be efficient, organized, serious, and in control, and still be fashionable uh, and graceful. And when a woman wears a Chanel dress, she embodies the virtues that Chanel imbued in her designs, whether or not she knows anything about who Coco Chanel was. And then consider the Braun watch. On the surface, this watch looks like a very ordinary watch. And on a deeper level, though, it hints at psychological or even spiritual qualities of purity, simplicity, and harmony. The watch does more than tell us what time it is. It gently nudges us towards the ideals that it conveys and represents. When you wear this watch, it sort of makes you want to be on time. In contrast, this watch with the G-Shock watch by Casio. The watch conveys a focus on durability, even under the duress of water and shock. The wearer of this watch is making a statement that says he is sporty, tough, and rugged. Or this watch, called the slow watch. This watch has a 24-hour face as opposed to 12 hours, and the density of the numbers on this watch means that it's utterly impossible to distinguish between whether it's 3.41 p.m. or 3.42 p.m. Okay. The wearer of this watch does not intend to have his day scheduled down to the minute, but rather to live in larger increments of time, like 15 minutes. Okay. And the SLOW founders assert on their website, slow is not a speed, it is a mindset that most of us somehow lost. Let's make time to bring SLOW back into our life. Be SLOW. The founders of SLOW value the SLOW life, and by wearing the watch that they designed, the wearer is able to live the SLOW life too. Now we may not always be consciously aware of, or even able to describe how objects make us feel, but we do sense sort of a spirit or an energy that emanates from objects that we use and uh, and experiences that we engage with. So for example, the Eames lounge chair by Charles and Ray Eames was designed in the mid-century and it's reminiscent of a bygone era Its masculine structures offer sort of a supportive man-cave in a chair, beckoning the owner to come sit and relax and unwind after a busy day, and and maybe watch TV or read the paper until dinner is ready. The Wishbone Chair by Hans Wegner communicates a set of important values. Um, It's straightforward, it's honest, it's elegant, it's sturdy without being hefty or heavy, it's humble and casual, but dignified, and it's welcoming, unimposing design welcomes us to sit on it, and as we do so, we become a little bit more like it. Now, various religions understand this relationship between design and its impact on the human spirit. From the ornate and the ostentatious, to the streamlined and simple, places of worship have been designed for centuries to evoke a certain set of virtues and values, and maybe bring people a little bit closer to God. And whether you're religious or not, you cannot help but pause and appreciate the beauty of these places of worship and prayer, which brings you a little closer to serenity and equanimity. A well-designed product uh, or space can bring out the best in us, and conversely, a poorly designed object can represent the worst sides of human nature. Greed, insensitivity, the desire to prevail no matter what the cost. And as much as beauty promises goodness, ugliness evokes despair, suffering, and immorality. Ian Fleming, author of the James Bond series, implicitly understood this. One of his most notorious villains, Goldfinger, was named after a real person named Erno Goldfinger. Erno Goldfinger was an architect who was known for making giant, austere, hulking, concrete buildings which were characteristic of the brutalist architectural movement. And this architectural trend, which was popular in the 50s and 60s, was well known for its use of cheap concrete building materials and became popular after World War II because it provided a sense of security in areas that had been devastated during bombings. And brutalism was also associated with a socialist utopian ideology which prevailed in European communist countries from the mid-60s to the late 80s. And their foreboding style conjures images of totalitarianism, violence, force, and stark utility and the severe exteriors of these buildings appear unimaginative and bland. But to Ian Fleming, the ugliness of these brutalist architecture architecture was personified as evil, which was embodied in his fictional evil villain, Goldfinger. When positive ideals are manifested in objects and products that we use, those objects and products play sort of a positive psychological or spiritual role in our lives. Well-designed products are manifestations of mindfulness, virtues like patience, resilience, iteration, focus, empathy, non-attachment, all at play. And when we use these products regularly, they give us a chance to get closer to our better selves. When they're contained in physical things, psychological qualities that are often intermittent in our thoughts and conduct become more stable and resilient. So an inner evolution takes place within us, which is why we form an emotional connection to well-designed things. Well-designed objects help us grow into our better selves and serve as ever-present reminders of what we can be. And the ability for design to influence how we think and feel goes beyond physical objects and spaces and extends into ephemeral experiences like service design and digital product design. So for example, with Google, Larry and Sergey aimed to build a powerful technology that helps people find information efficiently. They invented algorithms that made it possible to find uh, information easily, but it didn't just stop there. They committed billions of dollars of capital outlay to make web infrastructure, to make search as fast as possible. They championed company objectives, referred to as OKRs, centered around reducing latency. And they also did this um, by bringing to life a set of values around efficiency and scale through the streamlined interface. Everything done at Google was prioritized against creating p- a powerful, efficient tool. And by using Google to search the web or manage our email or our photos or documents, we in turn feel powerful, efficient, and capable. Here's another company, <clears throat> and here's another company called Nutanix uh, that I work with through my current role at Coastal Ventures as design partner. Nutanix just went public a month ago, uh, one of the most successful tech IPOs of the year, valued at $5 billion. They're an enterprise cloud company that makes data center infrastructure. Really nerdy, the last place you'd probably think of as being design focused. But their leadership often champions virtues like empathy and creating experiences that are frictionless. Um, And so here are a few examples of how these virtues play out in the customer experience. Most customer support interfaces try to bury the ability to escalate uh, cases because they often end up being expensive and time-consuming. But Nutanix puts this function at the very top, which sends a message to its customer support, support representatives that no issue is too small, no customer is too unimportant to be escalated. Okay? Here's another example with upgrading the data center software. Now upgrading software for data centers is typically complicated and prone to risks, especially when there are large clusters of machines that need to be upgraded. And understanding this challenge, the company reduced all of these activities into a one-click operation where the system administrator starts the process and Nutanix does the rest. And you can see from the enthusiastic tweets how much their customers feel cared for. They can upgrade their data center software from their Tesla or perform upgrades while barbecuing. And in the last two years since I started working with with Nutanix, they increased their net promoter score from 73 to 92, which is incredible. So in summary, what we make and consume is what we become, and conversely, at what we become, at so we make. We need good design in this world, not because we want to be extravagant or superfluous, this went away again, not to get people to buy more stuff, Um, but because good design helps us to be the best version of ourselves. And in order to make well-designed products, we need to transcend that which holds us back from making things great, whether it's fear, attachment, ego, greed. And when we understand and embody the virtues that we want to express through the design, we become oriented towards wholesome action, and that gets expressed in what we design. And this, in turn, affects how others think and feel. It's the greatest gift that we as makers can possibly give. Thank you.